Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics, which are going to educate and empower others. And give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, listeners. You are probably hearing this after coming off of a two-week spring break. I guess some people now have two weeks of spring break. Maybe you just had one week of spring break. I don't know how it aligned. You know, I know some people have celebrated Easter over this last weekend, but then to go to school on Monday, that's just lame. But yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid, sometimes that would happen where you'd have Easter and then the next day you go to school or because I always remember that because we used to go to extended family and eat for Easter. That was like in Ojai. So it was like far. And I remember that long drive and then going back to school. So that always changes. But we are now in the final stretch of the 22-23 school year. We are going to be at the end before we know it. So if there are things you need to do, you need to talk to your team about, Absolutely. get it done now. Absolutely. Start scheduling. I know. We were really ambitious thinking that we could have two or three eligibility categories in a podcast so that we could have fit it all in the shortest month of February because we are well into April. And we had a lot of great guests that we wanted to push into the earlier months so that you guys could get their their expertise. So we're still here. We're still doing the eligibility categories. We have not forgotten. We are making our way through and we are being way more realistic that it's one end episode. (laughs) I, I, I doubt that we will get to, let alone three in one episode, but today's gonna be really exciting. I think they all are exciting, but we will be talking about autism. In the past, we have had it be called autism-like, right? Or autistic-like behaviors. Well, this is California. So the IDEA has always said autism. As we talked about before, states can often, you know, vary. And what it did in California for its time was, that was back when the spectrum wasn't thought of as as big. So we had autistic-like behaviors because there were some kids that were similar All this to say is just because you have an eligibility of autism or just because you've had a diagnosis of autism doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. We've had kids who have diagnosis of autism that don't qualify under aut for some reason. And we'll talk about why that is in some cases. And then vice versa, kids that you don't have to have a diagnosis to fit under this category because some kids don't have diagnosis. Some kids that are young, maybe they get the diagnosis later or they just fall into the category this is one of those categories that is pretty similar, California Education Code to federal IDEA. Yeah, so let's get right into it. So the disability terms used in defining an individual's exceptional needs are as follows. One, autism means a developmental disability significantly affecting verbal and nonverbal communication and social interaction, generally evident before age three, and adversely affecting a child's educational performance. That is the first sentence, and there's so much in there. (laughs) So let's break that down. And something that, like Amanda just lightly touched on, you can have a medical diagnosis of autism. The people that are performing these evaluations are typically not medical 
experts. And I think that that's where a lot of confusion comes in because when a child does not qualify under autism in the IEP, a lot of times, and they have a medical diagnosis, the parent believes that the team may be stating your child doesn't have autism. And more often than not, that is a miscommunication. That is just like two ships sailing right past each other and like not being on the same team. And maybe there's a team member that said that and that's completely wrong. But for the most part, that is not what they are saying. They are just saying that based on their testing, right, which is going to be completely different than a medical testing. Well, just remember, a medical diagnosis of autism comes from the criteria under the DSM-5. In what Vicky just read under the IDEA, the statute, we are talking a legal terminology. The word autism in this category is not the same as the DSM-5. So we are not talking the same qualifications or criteria for falling under it. So when we say autism under the IDEA or the California Education Code or whatever state you're in, we are talking about a legal term of what is autism under this eligibility category, not autism in the DSM-5. So that's not always discussed in that communication that Vicky just mentioned. So just know that like the criteria is a little different. Absolutely. And the focus is right in that first sentence. The developmental disability, which is significantly affecting verbal and nonverbal communication and social interaction. They generally, this is coming to, you know, manifest, if you will, before the age of three. It just says generally evident. doesn't necessarily mean that it has to or does not have to. So you have that. We have the affecting verbal and nonverbal communication and social interaction and adversely affecting a child's educational performance. So we know that based on just the eligibility of of just becoming eligible under for an IEP, we are looking as to how the disability is affecting the child's educational performance. And it states it right in here, right? That the significantly affecting verbal and nonverbal communication and social interaction and adversely affecting the child's educational performance. That is where I see a disconnect where the child may not qualify under autism, but they qualify under speech and language impairment because that is what is adversely impacting the child's educational performance. Or Uh, they might qualify under both and the team says they want primary to be speech and language because that is a primary impacting factor. Exactly. I was going to say, another important thing to note is in this section, they talk about if the characteristics manifest after the age of three, as long as the rest of this is satisfied, that's okay. So, I mean, realistically, they shouldn't even have said an age in this because- Yeah, generally evident because then what if somebody's like, oh no, it has to be and it's not. The second sentence says, other characteristics often associated with autism are engagement in repetitive activities and stereotype movements, resistance to environmental change, or change in daily routines, and unusual responses to sensory experiences. How vague and general is that? Right. Well, so here's where we see school districts get in a little bit of a sticky situation. I have seen on evaluation reports, all of these characteristics listed. And what I have actually had school psychologists say, 
this child, in order to qualify under eligibility for autism, have to have all of these. Nowhere in the text that we just read to you does it say that all of them. In fact, the language says often associated, meaning none of these could be even the case, right? We're talking about a developmental disability significantly impacting verbal and nonverbal communication, social interaction. We are not talking about a specific set. You don't have to fit two out of the three. You don't have to get three out of the three. You don't have to get one out of the three. There's actually not specific language on what the characteristics are. So now what this means is that sometimes teens might have to dig a little bit deeper into what are these characteristics that often accompany an autism diagnosis. So if a child, for instance, has a medical diagnosis and their provider has written a recommendation based on their, most of the time in that letter talking about the diagnosis, they've listed the characteristics that have created their criteria under the DSM-5. If the team looks at those characteristics and they, and they impact verbal and nonverbal communication, social interaction, right? Which any kind there's that, I mean, that's vague, right? So any of them can fall under that child could satisfy under this eligibility category. So when you're looking at your evaluation report, if you see that analysis go into, and in fact, when I was pulling this up, I actually pulled up a document that talks about determining eligibility under certain criteria and under their like written explanation of autism eligibility, they actually write, it says the criteria. So it it actually, it's interesting. They say here's section 30301 title five CCR provides, and it lists what we just wrote, read out loud, but then it goes further to say criteria all elements listed below must be determined in order to establish eligibility. This is what we're talking about. This is not legally appropriate. This is a school district going further than they're allowed to go. And then what the criteria that it says is what you have to have one, a written report from a school psychologist that includes all existing information related to autistic like behaviors exhibited by the student Two, a significant impact of deficits in verbal and nonverbal language communication and social interactions must be documented in the report. Three, there may also be documentation of an impact of the following behavioral responses, resistance to environmental change or changes in daily routine, engagement in repetitive activities and stereotyped in movements, unusual responses to sensory activities. And then the third or the fourth is behavioral manifestation adversely affects students' educational performance. So obviously this has gone a lot further than what the law says. And it's actually limiting this eligibility category more than what the law says, which they're not allowed to do. But the important thing also here, and this is where I had an IEP recently where this was a problem, is that the school psychologist read that second line, a significant impact of deficits. There's nothing in the IDEA that said that it's a significant, it's it's significantly affecting, right? But the language in here is a little bit more specific, wanting the team to go deeper into specific like criteria here. So if you're looking at your report and you're looking at what school psychologists said, and you're looking at the difference between the law and this, and it's adding on more criteria, then that's not necessarily appropriate. Now you might find that your child still qualifies, but that's just something to really note about this criteria. Yeah. And what's interesting is the like A and B under autism, right? The first being autism saying, uh, 
A being autism does not apply if a child's educational performance is adversely affected primarily because the student has an emotional disturbance as defined in subdivision B4 of this section. I'm in the California eligibility criteria section. Um, and so it's referencing emotional disturbance, which we will get into. But this is like the comorbidity that we see oftentimes. So they, spe- they specify like, hey, it's not autism. If the educational performance kind of also, you know, whatever is affecting the child, it can also be emotional disturbance. So that's really interesting. The second thing is what Amanda had said before, B, a child who manifests the characteristic of autism after age three can be identified as having autism if the criteria in subdivision B1 of this section are satisfied. And so when we are looking to see whether or not like the biggest glaring thing, and we see, we hear this a lot is, oh, the child can communicate great. The child is great at communicating. And it's like, okay, verbal and nonverbal communication and social interaction can be taken. Like you're just looking at the verbal, you know, communication. You're just looking at nonverbal communication. You you just look at social interaction. But the way that it's read and written is there all this information. It's not just, well, they can talk and they have friends. Well, you're not digging deeper into it and what that actual data is saying a 20 minute observation on the playground is one thing as opposed to what's happening in the classroom and to me a child that is observed to walk around you know the fence the outline of the playground and then maybe have one social interaction with another child that lasted maybe less than five minutes like to me the majority of your 20 minute observation was seeing the child circle around right I think that is what we always say about you being curious as parents and asking questions because it's very easy to just make a very, we hear this all the time in law school. It's very conclusory. Your sentence is very conclusory. There is no analysis. What is the analysis that is being done? And that's why it's important to have the, a draft of the evaluation as early as possible so that you as a parent can read through it and have time to answer those questions. And we always encourage you guys to to request it. You know, maybe you get it five days before, maybe you get it the morning of. If you get it the morning of and you don't have time, then, you know, you have them go through it. You ask whatever questions that you can. And then you say, you know, what, we have to hold a part two because I need to digest this information because this is a lot. This is a lot, especially with autism being the eligibility category that is unique in that, it's not like deaf or hard of hearing. That is a medical diagnosis, yes, but the way in which the child is affected with schooling and their hearing and things is going to be fairly similar. But there's yeah. something about autism and the way that the child presents, the school presents, the parent is saying the child presents. Yeah, get into well, it. There's such an array of a variety of characteristics with autism. And mm-hmm. there's nothing in the law that says that you must click all these boxes in order to be eligible. Um, Because a kid, like going back to the communication, a lot of times that speech component is thought, well, they're, they're able to verbalize their wants and needs. That's not the only thing that's required for effective communication, social skills, whether they have friends or talking to peers, that's very different. So like we said, we got to be curious. We need the team to do more of that analysis when we're looking at it. There's not a requirement of all of these characteristics 
is going to be individualized to the kid. It's that second prong of it needs to adversely affect, right? So what, it's still somewhat subjective, right? So like, if you have a team, a sociologist that's just saying, it doesn't significantly impact. You need to be asking, what do you mean by it doesn't significantly impact? What would be considered significantly impact? Because if my friend, my child isn't able to communicate with peers and they're in the fifth grade and they're required to do a lot of work with peers and they're about to go into middle school where they're going to have to do a lot with peers. Is that significantly impacting? I would say yes, especially if there's other impacts, right? But just because they're able to communicate with one or two people doesn't mean that it isn't a significant impact. So what's significant for one kid may not be significant for the other. And you could also be looking at, you know, there's six different characteristics of autism that your child is exhibiting in school, and they all might be minor individually, but together, taken together, it's a significant impact. And that's something that's often missing from these this analysis is like, oh, well, like each of these are not that big of a deal, but like, well, what if you take them all together? And so we need to be looking, like looking at that as well. So that's an important tool to be asking when the team, if they're not having these conversations, if they're not diving deeper into these characteristics, if they just have a school psychologist that is saying, making a conclusory statement of no, we don't see a significant impact we need to be having more of a discussion. It should not just be one person making that statement. And then, you know, their attorney going around the room saying, does everyone agree? And everyone just shakes their head. Well, that's not a conversation. That's not a discussion, right? So we always go back to this. The team needs to be having a discussion. Yeah, remember, you know, and it's specified in, in California under the eligibility category before we even get into the 13 eligibility categories that, the IEP team shall take into account all relevant material, which is available on the child. No single score or product of scores shall be used as the sole criterion for the decision of the IEP team as to the child's eligibility for special education. So exactly what Amanda just said, that is written into the California Code for you to be able to have these conversations, to ask those questions, and to determine as a whole, as an IEP team, whether or not the child, at least for this eligibility category, should it fit, right? Can we walk through the door, the autism door, so that the child can be provided with with whatever support and services that they uniquely need to be And, And one last thing, I know we've talked about this before, but just as a reminder, the eligibility category of autism doesn't preclude your ability to get services associated with students with autism. So for example, ABA therapy, if there is a autism specific special day class, a school team cannot say, well, you don't fall under autism eligibility. So you can't have those services. We have had that happen before, especially with like ABA, because your child might better fit under SLI or SLD or you know, any other category, because they they might have other impairments that are more significant. And, but that doesn't mean, so everything should be individualized. Remember, we have these 13 doors, we're walking through that door. If you don't walk through the autism door, it doesn't mean that if your child has behavioral problems associated with autism, that they can't get ABA therapy. So, you know, that's also something to keep in mind when we look at the eligibility, because just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean that you need to have the autism eligibility category. Absolutely. Years ago, before we were attorneys, that seemed to be the like the trend 
that parents were trying to get autism diagnoses medically based because certain districts just had a perfectly cookie cutter kind of program where it was like, you got autism, you have autism, you get PT, you get OT, you get speech and language. Like it was just this like, boom, 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 boom. That has since now been debunked. You (laughs) as a district cannot be doing things like that. Like obviously autism specific programs do exist, but what we would like to remind you is that even if it is embedded within the classroom, if your child requires more of something, speech and language, uh, behavioral services, then your child should be getting that. The one yep. size fits all approach has like, they, districts have lost on that, right? Um, so this is just your friendly reminder that once you get through that door, whatever your child needs, then that is what should be provided. Obviously our jobs exist because that doesn't always pan out the way that you feel that mm-hmm. it is. But you know, we are attorneys and we are using this for educational purposes. But if you have any questions, please do not be afraid to contact us. Even if you are in a state, we have, and I'm dating myself, a Rolodex of others. We don't physically have a Rolodex, but I think that's just the easiest way to describe. We know people. We know people in other states and we will get you connected with someone. So keep up the good fight. We, We are almost there and we will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.